0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 8 to 13. 1 Corinthians verses 13 chapter 13 verses 8 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and you can open it to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, Let's pray. Let your gospel, O Lord, come unto us, not only in word, but power and in much assurance, and in the Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth, and strengthened unto all obedience, and enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of the faith, and the labor of love, and the patience of hope, we may finally be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm very thankful for Pastor Jonathan Gibson giving us the word last weekend, and I think when we came back, um, immediately I think our prayer time doubled, our prayer like attendance doubled on Saturday, right? Something like that. Um, and so I just encourage you to continue to pray along with our church, and I think it's especially here when we gather together, and when we sing, and when we pray, and when we listen to the word. Um, That's when the Spirit really is moving in our church and transforming us um, into, you know, the standard that the Scripture shows us. And that's where we are. We are in the letter to the First Corinthians, and we are specifically in chapter 13. This is the famous love chapter. This is Paul's great hymn of love. And if you've been following with us from chapter 12, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts, you know, one can't perhaps wonder why all of a sudden you see this kind of admonition, even a reprimand about gift usage, and then all of a sudden he would burst out into a song about love. It's not like he took a radio break and then he's just singing love songs. But this is such a popular passage on love, uh, many people would even use this passage for their own personal relationships, be it in a wedding or wherever you would perhaps recite vows to one another. But this is Paul's grand and climactic writing on love. You know, he started out with saying that even if I could speak in the languages of men and angels but didn't have love, I'd only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You could have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries, faith to move mountains, but if you didn't have love, it would amount to nothing. You could give all your possessions to the poor and even give up your body to be burned, but if you didn't have love, you would have gained nothing from it. So Paul starts off from this great Example: The great illustration, and he pushes the illustration to the hyperbolic. So you see the languages of men, which is a great illustration to angels, the hyperbolic, the exaggerated, the fantastical, and even the impossible. You could start here, that's what he's saying. You could start at this really high level, this incredible level of gifts, and then even go to a non-existent level. But if you didn't have love, if you don't have love, it would count for nothing. He talks about these high gifts that everyone in Corinth wanted. And so he starts at the highest possible level and goes even higher than that to show that without love, their ambitions, their desires, the drive that they have, that all counts for nothing. And so he starts his hymn of love on the notion that Without it, you have no foundation. You need love as the foundational virtue of all that you do. And then we saw multiple statements on what love actually is. Love is not simply sentiment. It's action. Agape love, this self-sacrificing love, can only be understood through action. You can't just say, I would love to buy my wife flowers someday and never do it because love is doing. Love is patient. That means it suffers long. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. That means it doesn't puff up or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And now we come to this final section in chapter 13, and it's on the eternality of love, the eternality of love. And it starts out with this sentence. The passage that we read starts out with this sentence, love never ends. In some translations, you may recall it as love never fails or love never falls, but love never ends. And love never ends because God is love and God is eternal. And just as we are admonished, like the Philippians, to think about, this is what we are admonished to do. And this is the book that we went over in the past weekend. Paul admonishes the Philippians, as he does all the believers in Christ, that. We ought to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. That's what we ought to think about. But you see, the Corinthians were not exhibiting these qualities. They were not only unloving, but they were divided. And if you remember all the way back to the first sermon on Corinthians that we had, Corinth wasn't just one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, it was one of the most corrupt. It was known to be a city of immorality, debauchery, sex escapades, and drunkenness. You know what, if you wanted something like this, you knew what street corner to go to. You know what neighborhood had this kind of stuff. And that's why the word to be Corinthianized was actually a word that they used in the ancient world. To be Corinthianized was to be associated with these characteristics of sexual immorality and debauchery. And it influenced then the church in Corinth in a variety of ways. Not just with moral failures, but to other extremes, like people would see these moral failures and some would completely give in to them, bring that into the church. But some would be pushed to this asceticism. And well, this is what some theologians called overrealized eschatologies. But it is a spiritual overconfidence. And then they wouldn't be able to acknowledge their own sin because they were busy looking down on other people's sins and lives. people thought that because they were saved i am free to do anything anything is possible because you know what jesus christ saved me so sin no longer has control over me right and there they would give in to sin and let sin control them all the things that the corinthian church was responding to it was a placating to the culture and their sinful desires. So they ended up being marked by materialism, selfishness, sexual immorality, contentious, and they were disunified. They made sects between like Paul or Apollos or Cephas and even Christ. They hated each other. They would even sue each other. They were competitive to the point where they would step on each other to get to what they thought would be the higher gifts so that they can be on top. I have this gift. What do you have? And instead of being salt and light Christians that were needed in the world, they were being salted and influenced by the world. They weren't going against the grain. They were inviting these orgiastic and pagan practices into the body of Christ, Even during the Lord's Supper, that's how much the world affected the church. And when it came to the teachings of the gospel, they compromised. If you came to a difficult part, you know what? It's too difficult. Let's not handle it right now. But when you compromise, or when the church compromises, I want to tell you something. You can't stay neutral. You don't stay neutral. There is no such thing as neutral or middle when it comes to following Christ. And when the church doesn't influence Corinth, Corinth influences the church. And Paul is taking time in his letters to address the terrible situation that the Corinthian church was in. This is what happens when we excuse sin, we allow ourselves to be corrupted by sin. We abandon sound biblical doctrine to hear what our itching ears would rather hear. And when this happens, then we see, we see here in the book of Corinthians, in this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, that even spiritual gifts are falsified and corrupted. They become counterfeit and thereby void of any good. And Paul is starting to boil it down. He's boiling it down. Boiling it down to the absence of love. As you would read the first letter to the Corinthians, you read up to chapter 12, you're going through this with us, you probably couldn't help but to also wonder what is wrong with these people. You know, someone sent a meme to me the other day, and the meme was titled, A Brief Summary of Paul's Letters to the Corinthians. A brief, letter, a brief summary of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, and the caption was this, Why are you the way that you are? See, they were hostile to each other. They resented each other. They tore each other down. They were divided into groups. They argued. They sued each other. They didn't understand what marriage was. They didn't understand what sex is. And they only used each other to climb over each other. They didn't care who they would mangle on the way up as long as they could plant their flag at the peak of the mountain. But that's not what the church should look like. It should not look like the world. Rather, it should look more like her Savior. And as we've learned over the past weekend, it's Christ-like humility that leads us to church unity. And but pride was something sought after. Pride is something sought after, not humility. Pride was elevated, not service. But humble people serve because humble people love. And it's tragic to see a church without any servers because that means there is no love. You see, chapter 13 isn't just some lovey-dovey, sentimental, mushy-gushy poem. It's an indictment. It's an indictment on those that claim that they are of Christ, but do not have Christ's love. We saw in the beginning of the chapter how love is the highest thing. And following what the highest thing then does is, what does the highest thing do? We did verses 1 to 3. Love is the highest thing. And then we went on from verses 4 to 7. What does the highest thing do? The highest thing lifts up. And now we see how this highest thing that lifts up never ends. It is eternal. And I said before how you may have heard from other translations, love never fails or love never falls, and I think those are fine and good translations too. It means that love will never decay. It will never stop. And the word here is, translated end. Love will never end, but that Greek word that was translated end is only translated as the word end here, but in every other place that the word is used in the New Testament, it's translated as either fall or descend, as in to die. So that means love doesn't fall to die. It, mean, it doesn't mean, though, um, Failing at no point is love. Um, If it fails, that means, you know, this is something that we should be kind of scared about or question, and we're going to get into that. But love never ends means it will persist forever, that it is the ultimate reality. It's the one thing that doesn't change throughout history, has not changed, and will not change. Death can't change it. Eternity won't change it. And that's important to know because there are misunderstandings on this passage. When it's read in weddings, or people want to mean like love always wins, or something like that, and they might say something like this When you go through tough times, don't worry because love wins. Um, That's easily disproved. You guys know this, right? That's easily disproved. People get divorced. And even when these verses are read during a ceremony, it doesn't mean you won't get divorced. As if reading these verses somehow is casting an incantation against divorce. No, love does fail when it comes to relationships, does it not? You think Paul didn't see this? Maybe even more than us? Especially when he looked at Corinth? It does fall short when it comes to satisfying someone. And it seems as though it does end. The Apostle Paul isn't stupid, though. He knows this. He must have seen this kind of love fail many, many times in families and even churches. But look who he's writing to now. Isn't it where it's failing big time? And these weren't people that didn't know God. They had the love of Christ in their lives. They did receive the gifts. But surely you can see how they were failing, right? You can see how they were failing in this love right now. You see, even Jesus, when he was on this earth, didn't receive love all the time. And the love that he gave wasn't always reciprocated. Look at the example of Judas Iscariot. But it didn't mean that Jesus didn't treat people with the incredible love of God either. And yet, he was spurned. He was rejected. Remember the rich young ruler? He left Jesus because he wanted to keep his riches more than he wanted to follow him. He looked at his portfolio. He's like, Bitcoin is rocketing to the moon. I can't give it up. Let me just hold it. But then, when Mark is telling the story, He describes Jesus as looking at him and loving him. And we can get into why, perhaps, love can fail. Although I would think that love between Christians has a greater hope and chance for success. But if we get into it, I should think that this would be a very long message. But because you can imagine all the factors that go into a relationship between humans. Let me just share one that I heard, though. In 1950, Paul Ramsey wrote this book called Basic Christian Ethics. And in it, he would observe that in the Western world, this is where we are, right? In the Western world, when we say, I love you, when we say, I love you, what we usually mean by that is, I love me, I want you. When we say, I love you, in the West, what we usually mean by that is, I love me, and I want you. I love me, and I want you to satisfy me. That's what we mean by, I love you. I mean, we could test this theory right now. How many times have you said to somebody, I love you? And how many of those times did you mean Love in the way 1 Corinthians 13 says love is. Because don't you love him because he gives you security? Don't you love her because she makes you feel good? Don't you love him because you can't imagine your life without him? Don't you love her because she was made for you? Listen to all those statements that I just made. Who was the primary object and target of the verb love? So maybe you don't have love in the first place. And maybe on the other side, you honestly did love somebody. Maybe it really was love. Maybe you genuinely loved somebody and they just didn't love you back. So what does Paul mean when he's saying love never ends? And does it have anything to do with married couples? You see, Paul is making a succinct statement here because he's going to clarify it in the coming verses. But he says that love love never ends because love is our foundational reality. Love is our foundational reality. This means that love doesn't pop in and out, stop here and begin here. Love as a foundational reality never ends. Love, then, is the operational force that that should undergird all our actions, all our ministries. And he immediately goes on to clarify. He says, love never ends, and then he says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And just an overview of this verse shows us that gifts are temporal. Love is eternal. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. And remember that these are the high gifts that the Corinthians really coveted. They really wanted these gifts. Why can't I have these gifts, God? You see, gifts are for the people on earth, and they are for a limited time. And if you wanted to use these temporal gifts properly, you need the eternal. You need the eternal that undergirds the temporal, and that's what he's getting at. By desiring only the fantastical gifts, it was more like saying, I love me, and I want the gifts. I'm going to take some time out here. That's why this is only part one. I'm going to take some time out here to study these three gifts mentioned here because Paul, I believe, purposefully uh, sections them out. He uses the same verb, pass away, for prophecies and knowledge, right? He first mentions prophecies and goes, it will pass away. And then in the bottom, he uses knowledge and will pass away. Remember, these are talking about gifts. This is in the context of gifts. And then in the middle, he uses a different word for tongues, he uses the word cease. And so it's interesting because it should grab our attention. If you've been following along with us, he always puts tongues last. It's always last. It's always in like uh, a footnote at the end of his list. But here he puts it in the middle. He's putting attention to it, right? And this is what we've learned about the burger mechanism. Anything put in the middle is put there to stand out. And this context also makes sense I'm not just pulling it out of nowhere because almost all of chapter 14 will be on the gift of languages or glossar tongues, okay? But as for prophecies, the canon wasn't closed. That means the scriptures that we have now was not closed at the time of the writing, so it has not passed away here the scriptures were still being given to Paul and the other apostles and the apostles who received the word. You can imagine people reiterating the same message, prophesying the same message in their worship services, and it's the same with knowledge. Knowledge is the gift of knowledge of who God is, and so we're talking about this gift of knowledge. We're not talking when we say gift of knowledge, we're not talking about the ability to do quantum physics. It's spiritual and scriptural, scriptural knowledge. It's the knowledge of God that would eventually be written down. And then there's the third gift that Paul puts in the middle. And it's the gift of languages. This was a sign given to God's people to validate that what he had given, the prophecy and the knowledge that was given, it validated them. Signs were how God validated his word and the prophets. The Jews knew this even Nicodemus, a Pharisee, would go find Jesus at night, and he would say this to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We went over how Pentecost was a validation or a sign of the Holy Spirit falling upon Jerusalem, subsequently followed by these mini-Pentecosts that would go to Samaria, Judea, and the other Gentiles. And that was a sign that the Holy Spirit was being given to the people of God. And while we'll get into the tongues and interpretation more in chapter 14, the point here is that prophecy is important. Prophecy is incredibly important, but it's temporary. Knowledge is important, but it's temporary. And here's where people get tripped up. It's on tongues. If the gift of languages or tongues was a sign gift, then it was to affirm the prophecy and knowledge that was given. Now, I want to speak on some of the understandings that we may have, or may have grown up in some kind of uh, similar environment. See, one of the very core beliefs of the charismatic movement is that speaking in tongues is a sign given to believers of their second baptism, namely the baptism of the Spirit. This is false. First, there's only one baptism. As Paul says in Ephesians 4:5. there's only one baptism. What does that mean? Um, this is uh, what R.C. Sproul writes on this. Baptism is primarily about God and what He does. Baptism's efficacy is tied to neither individual involved in the sacrament, recipient, or minister, but to the sovereignty and trustworthiness of the Lord in whose name baptism is administered. The validity of baptism does not depend on the individual faith of the one administering the sacrament, for that would make the efficacy of God's promises dependent on a mere creature, as if God were dependent on the faith of the minister to give a new heart to one of his elect. The validity of baptism does not depend on its being received after a profession of faith, for baptism conveys God's promise to give faith to his elect, and God is free to grant faith When he will. What does that mean? That means it's not on you that changes your heart. The baptism that you have received comes from God. It's nothing that you have done, it's nothing that the minister does. I'm not someone that is extra holy that when I baptize you, something happens. And it's not you that finally I make or do something, even if it's a profession of faith. It's not me doing something that gets me baptized, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the regeneration work. That's why we don't baptize more than once. There's one baptism. The Bible says so, and it's God's work. There are no tears in Christianity where you get baptized with water, and that's level one, and then you have to wait and really work hard so that you get baptized by the Spirit later. This is a misunderstanding of what is clear in the Scriptures. God brings you into the fold of Christ by baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that was only one point. Secondly, glossa or tongues in the Bible has always meant a known language. Ecstatic speech was not permitted in the Bible. So this new kind of speech labeled as tongue is something foreign in the Bible because glossa is a language. And the angelic tongue or language that we saw in verse 1, it was used for hyperbole. One example in one verse that never shows up again in any other place in the Bible. So, these revelatory gifts are sandwiching the sign gifts, the sign gifts that actually validate and affirm revelation that is being given. Paul saying that prophecy and knowledge will pass away. Obviously, he's not saying that the word of God is going to pass away. The Bible says the word of the Lord will stand forever, it is eternal. But in the context that we are in, he's talking about these as gifts, okay? So the gift of prophecy and knowledge will pass, and the tongue or the gift of languages will cease. I'm going to get into that a little bit more. So I said I'll get into it. And people were like, you're going to get into it, right? I'm getting into it. I'm going to get into it for the next six weeks, so I'm getting into it. And so if you had questions, that's great. Hopefully, you'll see why we waited this long, because Paul actually does get into it. So the word that's translated for pass away is katargeo, okay? Okay? katargeo is used four times in this passage. But pass away, if you look at this passage, is used three times, right? So the fourth time katargeo is used is translated as gave up. It's translated as gave up, but it's the same word pass away that's translated as pass away. So I gave up my childish ways. That's katargeo. And katargeo is an, is to inactivate. Okay, It's to forcefully stop. In 2 Corinthians, when katargeo is used, it's translated as brought to an end. Every single time, it's brought to an end, brought to an end, right? It's like shutting off a faucet. It's inactivated. It implies that someone's going to stop it. Someone will bring prophecy and knowledge to an abrupt end. The word for cease, however, is different, and it's translated differently because there are different words because they mean different things, and that's why it's translated differently. It's from the word pa'ul. That is an intransitive verb. That means it takes on no object. An example is if I say, "I laughed. I laughed." That's an intransitive verb. Laugh doesn't take on a, an object. You can't ask, "You laughed what?" That doesn't make any sense, right? You laughed what? Laughed is an intransitive verb because laugh doesn't take an object. Pa'ul ceased doesn't take an object. That means tongues will cease it means it will stop on its own just like i laughed it's going to stop i'm not going to laugh forever it's just going to stop on its own it's if i said the train will come to a stop a train will cease so why would paul use two different words for these gifts to stop i'm going to put a caveat out there that some scholars differ on this and i'm going to tell you why i stand on a certain side Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped because of what it said in the next verse. Because the perfect comes. Because the perfect comes. The perfect is translated from teleos. You know what telos is? We went over that. It's perfect, like completion. It's fulfillment, right? It's perfect isn't like, wow, you look perfect today. That's not the word for perfect here. Perfect, teleos, means it's fully completed. So when the canon was completed, there's no need for prophecy or knowledge. It's completed. Notice the gift that is missing from that next verse. Prophecy and knowledge is completed. When the perfect comes, what's the gift that's missing that's not mentioned? It's tongue. Perhaps because it would have ceased already because these are things that would have validated prophecy and knowledge. So if prophecy and knowledge cease, then there's no need for validation. Some scholars then, I'm going to tell you the other side, some scholars think that's reading too much into it. And it's like, well, that's reading too much into it. I think they, they may uh, you know, have a point. You have to define teleos then. So what is the perfect then? So I said, what is the perfect that will come to stop prophecy and knowledge? And they'll say something like they think it's the second coming of Christ. So When the second coming of Christ, then prophecy and knowledge will stop. So that's difficult to argue, in my opinion, because if prophecy didn't cease, then the Bible can continue to be written, and it's still not complete, and it's still not perfected as a whole. That would leave room for the Quran or the Book of Mormon. And I don't think any scholar is arguing for that. I gave you all this. I know you had to perhaps put your thinking caps on But there's a reason we need to know this see it leads me to my next point on this the gift of tongues was given as a sign to the israelites that the word of god was being given once it is given meaning once it is completed then the tongues would also naturally cease pass away paul is sharing what will happen in the future he obviously doesn't know exactly when but he knew it was coming but the point of this explanation was to point to the perfect When you don't accept the perfect then, remember, when the perfect comes, knowledge and prophecy will stop, will pass away, right? But when you don't accept the perfect, this is where tongue comes into play. Tongue, it says in chapter 14, we're going to get into it too, but in chapter 14, verse 20, you can look along if your Bibles are open. This is what Paul writes about tongues. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Put that into context right now. I hope your understanding is being opened by the Holy Spirit. Tongue is a sign for unbelievers. And this is what God writes in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this, this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon, precept, precept upon, precept, line upon line, line upon line, hear a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. What does this mean? Tongue was given as a sign of judgment for those that do not receive the perfect. The perfect is given, and if you do not receive the word of God, there is judgment. That's what tongues pointed to in the Old Testament, and that's what Paul is saying in chapter 14 as well. And why is that important? Because I feel like we're taking all these things to mean what we want it to mean and not what the Word of God says it means. What does the Word of God say something is? And this is what we receive wholeheartedly in obedience with a childlike heart. Today, love doesn't mean what God says it means in the world today. Love means something else too. Love means something else like tolerance or acceptance. That's not love. Love is sacrificial service. It's not about you and your feelings. It's about the other. And now that we have received the perfect word of God, it's time we give up our childish ways and start to mature in Christ's love following his humble example. And this is what Jesus said when he was here on this earth. Foxes have holes, birds, have air, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He came and his entire life he used to serve. I said this, I asked this uh, to Sam on the podcast too that you'll hear tomorrow, but I asked this question. If you had one day to live, if you only had one day to live, what would you do? And Think about it. If, you, if today was the last day before the whole world implodes or aliens come, I don't know, whatever it is, what would you do? I'll tell you what Jesus did. He knew he had one day to live, and he washed his disciples' feet. He had one day to live, and he took off his robe, tied it around his waist, and he washed his disciples' feet. So he wasn't, I love me, I want you. That's not what he lived by. Jesus is love because he is God. And he came in the form of a servant for unworthy sinners like me to save and seek the lost. And because we see what Jesus has given us, we now, in gratitude, we can reciprocate, we can reflect, we can give back in gratitude, worship to our King, and in Jesus Christ's example, we can now serve those that are around us. That's what love is. That's the point of gifts. That's the undergirding reality That will never end because god is love god is eternal and he shows it to us in the life of jesus christ that has been given to me and now i can live in that promise serving others as christ served me my brothers and sisters the admonishment that we're given in chapter 13 is to do service in love don't do service to prop yourself up to push others down so that you can plant your flag on the mountain don't do service out of envy the whole world today is going crazy because envy is the main driver do you know what the rich man couldn't respond to jesus with that one thing that was left out of all the commandments it was covetousness it was to covet he left that part out because envy drives us away from love. If I envy you, I don't love you. If I want the things that you have, I don't serve you because I believe that what you have belongs to me. I love you really means I love me and I want you to serve me instead of me serving you. But that's not what Christ did. And that's not the example He showed us, and that's not what life we've been given. That's not the life we've been given. My brothers and sisters, this chapter admonishes us to love like Christ loved. Love like Christ loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you, and thereby the world will know you are my disciples. This is how we continue to follow Christ, to love, to serve, to sacrifice for one another. We know we can do this because God commands us to, but God shows us. Let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly humbled when we come to recognize that you used your entire life to serve unworthy sinners like us. We didn't deserve your mercy. We didn't deserve your grace. But Lord, you've given us to such overflow that we are overwhelmed. But Lord, instead of just emotional overwhelming, help us now to respond with gratitude and deep devotion That we may obey our Savior, take up the cross, and follow Him. Let's take this time to pray and reflect. And if there are times where you have also said, I love you, but you really meant I love me and I want you. Let's take this time to repent of those ways and that heart. Repent means to turn around and now love in the way scriptures admonish us to love a self-sacrificing love, the love that God has loved us with. Let's pray that we can love one another with that agape love. Let's pray.